Good. Now, what was I doing up here? Oh, yeah, preaching. We're going to get into John 17 is where we're going to be. Um, and, um, you know, it's natural on this, this particular uh, Sunday, uh, some of you who are, are savvy on these things know what I'm going to talk about. It's natural on this particular Sunday to think about, you know, palm branches and Jesus riding the donkey and the the, 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 the procession into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds cheering him and yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of, of God. And, and this is the Sunday we know as, as Palm Sunday. And so I have a couple of palms. I, I cut these off of a plant in the office um, this morning to have them here. And, uh, because, you know, because we're not really into that so much here. Um, and if you were part of a liturgical church growing up, you probably knew a little bit more about Palm Sunday, which I was too, by the way. I was like, I grew up in Anglican. I said that uh, before. And, and um, you know, so we would leave from our, our house and we'd walk to our Anglican church. You know, we'd walk this way to our Anglican church. And we'd come back from Palm Sunday services and we'd always have that that little piece of palm just fashioned into a cross. Any old Anglicans in the room, you remember that? You know, you had that little, little cross. But the sad thing is we'd have to pass the Catholics as they were coming back, and they'd have like full branches of palms. And as a little Anglican kid, I was like, what's with us Anglicans? Like, we need to step up our game and, and uh, match the Catholics on that. It's the only time I was ever jealous, really, of Catholics. But anyways, <laughs> sorry, was. Was that out loud? Sorry. Um, but anyways, according to the gospel record, let's get to the Bible. According to the gospel record, a lot happened between, you know, Palm Sunday and that Passion Week, between Palm Sunday and the Thursday night when Jesus was in the garden and was arrested, which led to his crucifixion, of course. Uh, prior to his arrest, uh, Jesus had gathered with the 12 in the upper room, and he, he joined them there for a final meal. He modeled what being a servant was by washing their feet as they came into the room. Then he shared a meal with them, and he inaugurated what we know as the Lord's table or communion or the Eucharist. Uh, he inaugurated that table, that ceremony for us, and he spoke to them throughout that meal about several things that they would need to know in light of his passing, not the least of which was some pretty incredible teaching on the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 and 16. We'll talk about that in a little bit and many other matters that they would need to know at his passing. He concluded that teaching, the meal, the washing of their feet, all of that, he concluded that with the prayer. That's what John 17 is, and it's what we've called the most powerful prayer ever prayed. John 17, um, what we're going to look at today, the first five verses, uh, Good Friday, Jordan's going to preach uh, the next set of verses, then Easter Sunday, I'll preach again here, and then the Sunday after, and we'll cover this whole chapter in those four uh, messages as we look at this incredible prayer of Jesus's. One uh, commentator said of this prayer that few passages of Scripture come so close to revealing the heart of Jesus as these 26 verses. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who is one of the reformers 500 years ago, said, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on, in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. In this prayer, Jesus prays about himself and his relationship to the Father. Uh, he prays for the 12 who are in the room with him, and he prays 
also for us in this prayer. And so it's not only an incredible encouragement to hear what Jesus prayed for us. I mean, think about that. A prayer recorded 2,000 years ago that Jesus prayed for us today. You're listening in on the Savior praying for you and for me. That's incredible on, on, just on its face. But this prayer is also a strong encouragement and even an exhortation to model this kind of praying in our own lives. And then beyond that, to hear what Jesus is saying and, and, and say, like, I want to be the answer to that prayer. I want to be living this out in my own life. And so that's what we're going to see over these uh, four weeks. Let's turn our attention to the first five verses, and then uh, we'll start working through, uh, through them in, in just a moment. John 17, 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All right, to pray as Jesus prayed means that I should also pray, let's look at this first, heaven-directed prayers. I should pray, you should pray, heaven-directed prayers. Now, John records in the first verse, you see this, when Jesus had spoken these words, and, and by that he means all of the words that he had just spoken in, in what is called the upper room discourse. So chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, leading up to this prayer, all of this took place in this upper room prior to his arrest in the garden. So he goes on to say here, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Much less important that he lifted up his eyes, much more important that he lifted up his heart to heaven. That his prayer was actually a God-directed, heaven-directed prayer. Now, this is important. We, we actually teach our children, you know, when we have young children at home, we teach our children to hold their hands in a certain way when we teach them to pray. It's either fold your hands like this or have your hands like this. We teach our children to do this, and we do this less because we're trying to teach them something about how their hands should be in prayer, and more because we know that as soon as we close our eyes, they're going to do something with their hands that they ought not to do. We're teaching them something about discipline and about prayer, that during grace and during family devotions and during those bedtime prayers, we need their attention to be on this and for them not to be distracted in any way. We're teaching them about focus. We're not teaching them that you have to have your prayers in a certain way if you want God to hear your prayers. That would be incorrect, that would be false teaching. We're teaching them about focus and attention. And we do the same thing with all of our different postures, all of the different devices that we use during prayer. We kneel, we stand, we sit, we bow, we lay prostrate before the Lord. We close our eyes, we lift our eyes. But none of those things is actually required of us for our prayers to be heard. Each is meant as a device. Each is meant to communicate something, for example, like humility 
or, or, it's, or it's meant to communicate access, that we understand that we have access to the Father. We're lifting our eyes to the Father. There's something that we understand about the access that we have with Him. Or, as we said with the children, we're teaching focus and attention. But all of these devices are symbolic of what's to be in our hearts. Now, what's critical here is not that Jesus' eyes were directed upward. After all, God is everywhere, amen? God is everywhere. It's not that his eyes were directed upward, but that his heart was. That the prayer itself was genuinely heaven-directed, God-directed. Now, that seems like a very basic principle, like it's a very elementary truth, like it's the kind of thing that we should be teaching at Harvest Kids in the north end of the building, but not so much up here. Yes, of course, our prayers are supposed to be heaven-directed. It seems like such a simple principle, but there remains so much confusion among most people in the world about the nature of prayer and even how we access God. Gerald Borchard actually raised the issue in his commentary that in the Jewish context of the day in which Jesus prayed this prayer, so first century Judaism, the Jews had actually developed what he called, and I like this phrase, a remote view of God, a remote view of God. Today, um, we have uh, a school of thought within religion called deism, and deism is the idea that God created everything. He wound it up, and he's just letting it unwind, but he's detached and distant from it. He's not a God who's personal that we can connect with. That's deism. And there's a hint of that in what these first century Jews were believing about God, that he was remote. In fact, Borchardt goes on to say that the Jews in the first century were afraid to say his name, so afraid to say his name, so afraid to pray directly to him for fear of violating the commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, that's a commandment of God. Don't take my name in vain. Don't use it carelessly. They took that commandment and backed up so far away from it that they were afraid to even talk to him in prayer. And what they did is they added tradition and religion on top of what God had commanded. And, and not on, I'm not done talking about Catholics because not, not unlike Catholics today, the first century Jews were often then channeling their prayers through angels just to be safe. If I can't talk to God directly, here's what I'll do. I'll just talk to an angel and have the angel deliver the message. Now, in case you're not sure if that's actually a thing today, I got this. So a friend was visiting Montreal last week, and uh, he knows I'm from Montreal, so he knew I'd be interested in this. He toured Notre Dame Cathedral. How many people have ever toured Notre Dame in Montreal? It's a wonderful, beautiful building. If you're ever in Montreal, that is a must-see place to go. And he was touring that, and he sent me this picture that he saw at an altar. Okay, this first part's going to sound wacky anyway. At an altar to the angel Gabriel, he saw this sign. You can, I'll read it for you. You can light a candle two ways now. Number one, use the credit card device, and the candle will light. I mean, you don't even need to like take the little stick thing, get the fire, go light the candle. I mean, they've simplified the whole process. It's awesome. Use the credit card device and the candle will light. Tap or insert your card. Use your smartphone. Here it comes. Access Gabriel by using the QR code. 
man, I thought we were advanced by using a QR code so you could communicate with the office. They're getting all the way to Gabriel. Just point your camera. And there's Gabriel right there available to you. Now, kudos to the Catholics for being right on top of the technology here. That's awesome. But no, it isn't because, listen, this is a, 500 years after the Reformation, the things that Martin Luther talked about with respect to Catholicism, and we're still in the midst of the Reformation, aren't we? There's still things that need to be changed because none of this is biblical. No one should be talking to an angel. No praying to angels. In fact, while we're here, should we just like build a little list of, of things we shouldn't pray to? Yes or no? Do you want it or not? All right, here we go. Just while we're here, while we're in the neighborhood. We do not pray to saints. They were simply believers like you and me who are awaiting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not pray to saints. We do not pray to angels. They, like us, are created beings beings whose primary purpose is to carry out the will of God. Anytime someone was in the presence of an angel and started to worship, like bow down in front of them, they always said, no, wait, no, we're servants just like you. Worship God. We do not pray to saints. We do not pray to angels. We do not pray to ancestors. They too are merely human beings who have no special access to the throne room and may or may not in fact be saved. We do not pray through priests. We are priests. Read the book of Hebrews. And we come directly to God through the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Amen? We do not pray to idols of any kind. We do not light candles. We do not need our crystals aligned. I don't even know what chakras are, but we shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) We're not trying to connect to divine energy. We do not pray to other gods believing that all paths lead to heaven. They don't. Jesus models it for us here. We pray to the Father, heaven-directed prayers. Now understand, even saying that, that we pray to the Father was an extremely offensive thing in this first century context with these Jewish leaders. He calls God his Father. Now this is a concept that's not entirely unknown in the Old Testament, but it's pretty rare in the Old Testament to find references to God being Father. In fact, there's a great little article by Gerald Bray. It's a TGC article on God as Father. The link is in your notes if you want to pursue that a little further. But no one uh, in Israel naturally fell into the idea that God was Father. That's, That's a concept that is far more New Testament than Old Testament. But through Jesus, we get this clarity. God has given you and me personal access into his presence, the privilege of speaking to God personally and directly knowing that we are his sons and daughters and that he is the best example of what a father can and should be, the ideal father. And if it's not too flippant, if I could bring us very, very close to the heart of what we're talking about here, that he's a dad inviting his kids to come and sit with him on the couch and to chat. That's the God that tells us, asks us, invites us to pray to Him. So pray heaven-directed, God-directed, Father-directed prayers. 
In other words, just talk to him. Now, I should pray, notice this secondly, I should pray Christ-centered prayers, which is an odd thing to say because Christ is praying the prayer. But it's a Christ-centered prayer. Jesus, in the latter part of verse 1, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority of all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, I read that verse and a half, and I went, wow, there's so much going on in that verse and a half from a theological standpoint. We could talk in these verses about the nature of the glory of God. We could talk about relationships within the Trinity. We could talk about the authority that Jesus had as the Son, the incarnate Son. We could talk about the fact that those who would be saved were given to the Son by the Father. There's so much in here. We could preach four messages. We could write paragraphs and paragraphs of theology based on this verse and a half alone. But what is common in these four is the centrality of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's odd to say again because Jesus is praying this prayer, but it is a Christocentric prayer. But it's unique because of who He is. We're going to emulate this prayer by not making it a self-centered prayer. Jesus was praying about Himself, but we're not going to pray about ourselves, but we're going to emulate his prayer by making our prayers Christ-centered prayers. Now, that's an easy thing to say, but I want you to think about the implications of it. Because how does that now change our prayers if we say all of our prayers are going to be Christ-centered prayers? Because our tendency is to do the same thing with God that we do with Zares or Costco. What do we do with Zares and Costco? We look at our pantry, we look in our fridge, we see the things that we don't have and the things that we need. And we write a, we write down a list. And then we take that list to the grocery store and we fill up our carts and we bring it home and we've satisfied all of our requests. We do the same thing with God. We have needs. There's things going on, parts of our lives that are empty, things that we need to change, things we need to replace. And we go to God with our own self-centered list of things that we want from Him. But now listen, if our prayers are going to be Christ-centered instead of me-centered, how's that going to change how we pray? If my prayers are more about glorifying Jesus than focusing on whatever's going on in my life, then the way I talk about these things with God is going to sound different. In fact, let's, let's do that. Let's take Jesus, the little segment of Jesus' prayer here, and, and let's adapt that prayer phrase by phrase, and let's develop our own template for prayer. Here's what we're going to find. First of all, Jesus says, Father, my hour has come. The hour has come. What hour is he talking about? Well, he's in the upper room right now, in a few moments, they're going to wrap things up. He's going to finish his prayer. They're going to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to tell his disciples to wait and to pray with him. He's going to go off into the distance, and he's going to pray. And then in a, in a few hours' time, they're going to come for him. They're going to arrest him. There's going to be a trial overnight, and in the morning, they're going to nail him to the cross, and six hours later, he will die. His body will be taken down and put into the tomb. 
So when Jesus talks about the hour coming, that's what he's talking about. Not 60 minutes of time. He's talking about the totality of the hour of trial that's about to come on him. Father, the hour has come. Now, if we take that as a template for ourselves, we're going to God and we're saying, God, I'm going through a thing. I got a trial going on in my life. There's some difficulty happening here. There's some heartache that I have in my life. We're bringing the thing to God just the same way that Jesus is bringing the thing to God. But then he prays, glorify your son. Glorify your son. And our prayer would be this as we seek to emulate that. Please do a work in me through this trial, through this difficulty. Now notice, and we'll come back to this in more detail, notice what this is not a prayer for. This is not a prayer to remove me from the trial or to remove the trial from me, which is the most natural way that we pray. It's not, the first inclination of our heart is not God work through this trial. The first inclination of our heart is God get rid of the trial. Or is that just me? Some of you too? We want out of it. Again, we're going to come back to that thought. Here's the third thing, that the Son may glorify you, and our prayer would be so that I would glorify you. More than anything else, what I want in my life is that I'm going to glorify you. The, the, the West, if you know the catechisms, the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our chief end. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So we're just praying the thing that we know we're supposed to be doing as Christians. So that right there, this little template, this little threefold template, that is a Christ-centered prayer, largely because it is not a prayer to make my life easier or to get out from under the hard thing that I'm going through, but it is focused on the glory of God, and thus it is a prayer surrendering fully to the will of God. Now, this does not, this is important, this does not preclude praying for the hard thing that we're going through. No one is saying that. It, it doesn't keep us from praying for healing or praying for God to intervene or to change some circumstance. We can still pray these things. But even in our prayers that we might be asking, you know, in our prayers, we might be asking God to move in a way that we, we're kind of noticing God's not moving in that way and we're asking him to move in that way. Even when we're praying that prayer for God to intervene, we're still praying it according to His will, surrendered to whatever He would ultimately choose for us. Now, Jesus, the same night, we've already said, like after He prays this prayer, they move to the garden, He's praying in the garden. And the prayers there became far more intense. As He's praying, the the atonement is beginning to happen. The, the weight of all of our sin, of humanity's sin, your sin and mine, is being laid on him as he's in the garden and as he's praying. The reality of what he had submitted to all of a sudden is becoming so real to him. And in his humanity and in his divinity, he's feeling the full weight of sin. The perfect and sinless son of God is experiencing the weight and burden of sin for the first time. And he's bearing, in fact, not just sin, but he's bearing the wrath of God because of sin. The prophet said this, Isaiah 53, 5, upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. Our penalty 
is being laid on Jesus. So he's beginning to feel the full weight of this. And in fact, he said to his disciples, this is Matthew 26, 39, 38 and 39, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I'm feeling so broken, so crushed by the weight of what's coming upon me right now. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. we find a different way? Could you remove the trial? It's crushing me. He prays the prayer that we so often will pray ourselves, get us out of the trial. It's not wrong to pray the prayer, to ask God for these things, to, 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 to lift our, our request to Him for that kind of grace. But because he wanted more than anything else to glorify God, remember that prayer that he prayed hours before up in the upper room. What did he pray? That the Son may glorify you. And that prayer prayed ahead of time is, is crowning everything else, informing everything else. And so he also prayed, not only if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's whatever you want to choose for me. I'll submit to that. It's a tall order to model our prayers in this way. I'm not going to pretend that, that what I'm proclaiming to you here today is an easy thing to live out. I'm, I'm, I'm just like you. Don't think that because I'm a pastor, I study the Word, I get up here and preach, that somehow that I've got this all locked down and that I'm at some certain level of spirituality where I also don't want a life of ease, because I do. Where I also don't pray these prayers to have God make my life easier. I want a smooth life. I want blessing every day. And when I get blessing from God, I enjoy it so much, I ask Him for more. I want everything to go my way, just as much as you do. I feel like I can speak on behalf of the entire human race in saying, we want our lives to be easy. I'm tempted, one of my greatest temptations is that I would live a life of ease. Anyone else? But to say to God, more than anything else, Father, more than anything else, I want to glorify you. To say that means surrendering, surrendering to his choices for me, surrendering to his universal plan for the whole world. So it's not even just me. Like I'm understanding that whatever he does in my life fits into this massive plan that includes all of you and the whole world in some way. I have to be surrendered to that. And as it did for Jesus, because we know the rest of the story here, that's going to mean if I pray that prayer, God would be glorified in me. And that's 
the supreme principle of my prayers? That will, that will mean sacrifice. It's going to mean hardship. It's going to mean pain. It's going to mean suffering. It's going to mean loss and sorrow. It's going to mean that at times I'm going to be abandoned and rejected by friends and family. It's going to, it's going to mean it's going to mean not being relieved of my trial, but having to go through it. It means me praying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as will as I will, but you will. That, that is how we make every one of our prayers a Christ-centered prayer. And I'll add this too, though it's not specifically dealt with in these five verses, because we might ask the question at this point, so then how do I get through that? Because that sounds super hard. And that sounds like even as a human being, like I don't have the strength to do that, but God hasn't left us alone to make it through praying prayers like that and, and living out the consequences of that. He doesn't deal with it in these five verses, but in the full discourse, the upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17, he does specifically again in chapters 14 and 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper. The Greek word there, the original language word is the word paraclete, which some of you have heard, parakletos, and it means helper or counselor, or sometimes you've heard the Holy Spirit referred to as the comforter. The word means literally the one who comes alongside to help you, to be a support, to walk with you. And that's what Jesus said. Like, you don't have to pray that prayer alone. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you and is going to walk with you and empower you through all of this. So our prayers, as hard as they might be to pray, listen, we're going to pray them to the Father in the name of the Son, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be brought before the throne room of God. And Paul says, and this is the way the Spirit works, especially when it's hard to pray. Listen to this from, from the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Like even when you don't know what to pray, when it's really hard to pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you and, and, and praying for you in the midst of whatever you're going through. All three persons of the Trinity engaged in this conversation and in the prayers that we pray. All right, ready for another one? Here's a third. To pray as Jesus prays mean that I should also pray mission-oriented prayers. Uh, Jesus continued, verse 3 here, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, in simplest terms, what we're given as a mission in this world is that we would introduce people to Jesus Christ. In simplest terms, we could say that our goal and our, our, um, our mission in the world is to tell people about him, to introduce people to Jesus, that they would know him. The plight of every single human being is that they're born in sin. And they have no hope of heaven apart from those sins being forgiven, but, but no human being has the capacity, has the ability to, to appease the wrath of God, to pay the price for their own sin. No human being can become holy enough or righteous enough, do enough works or, or, or believe enough of the right things or do enough religious practice or be generous enough. No one can do enough to satisfy God's wrath. We cannot deal with our own sin, and so we need a perfect, sinless Savior to pay that price and to appease the Father's wrath. And that's what we need people to know. 
And when we say the word know, when we see it used here in John 17, you know, knowledge is not, it's cognitive. Like there's something we have to understand about it, but beyond cognitive, it's also experiential. It's something I know, but it's also something that I experience and live out. They need to know something about Jesus cognitively and experientially. They need to know Jesus and Jesus needed to accomplish the mission given to him by the Father. So he said in his prayer, verse four, I glorified you on earth, which is interesting that he would state it in the past tense because he had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet died. He had not yet been resurrected. He had not, not yet been ascended uh, to, to the Father. He had not yet done any of those things. It's past tense when he prays this. And yet those things hadn't done. He goes on to say, having accomplished, past tense again, having accomplished. Because I'm reading this going like you hadn't accomplished that yet. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, again, at least from our perspective, what we're talking about here is this is all happening on the human timeline. And on the human timeline, at the time he prays this prayer, he had not yet been crucified, had not yet been raised from the dead. But because in the recent months, we've become experts on the book of Revelation, correct? We have become more knowledgeable, maybe I'll say it that way, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, 8, you'll remember this verse. We find out that the names of those who were to be saved were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those who would be saved, their names were written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light, before the creation, the names were written in the book and the lamb was crucified. It all happened outside of time before God even created time. And so when Jesus says that I did these things, that these things were accomplished, they already were accomplished. Now, that's cool to think about. I, I love all the time talk. You know about that. I love to think about concepts of time and eternity. But the most important thing to see in this, the, the, the emphasis of this is the missional orientation of it all. Jesus completed his mission, and he wants us to know that. This prayer is all about what, what, what we need to accomplish beyond what Jesus did. We too must be wholly given to the task of helping people to know Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian, if you profess faith in Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins, you have the hope of eternity. If you're a Christian, then everything about you, everything about your life is for the purpose of people knowing Jesus. Do you think about your life in that way? Because if that is true, then everything in my life is defined by that principle. And if that's true, then I ought to be able to pray as Jesus did at the end of his earthly life. Look at what he prayed. I glorified you on earth. I glorified you on earth. Now, now he prays this just hours before he's to be crucified. Maybe it was nine o'clock 
on Thursday night when he prayed this prayer. The meal is over and, and he's praying to, 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 to end the evening and they're going to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray through the night. Somewhere in the course of the evening, the soldiers are going to come, the people are going to come and they're going to take him and he's going to be tried and he's going to be convicted. At 9 a.m., he's going to be crucified. By 3 p.m., he's dead. We're talking about hours. He's praying this mere hours, maybe 12 hours before the nails were driven into his hands. He prays, I glorified you on earth. Set, done, statement of fact. Now, if we're to be emulating this prayer, do you think you're going to be able to pray that prayer 12 hours before you die? Based on, the, based on the current trajectory of your life, in other words, the way you're living your life right now, just, just map that out to the last 12 hours of your life and you answer the question, will you be able to pray, I glorified you on earth. I lived my life in a way that glorified you. I did everything I could do to help people know Jesus. I spent my life on mission for him. I prayed for the lost. I talked to people about Jesus. I told them my story of coming to Jesus. I invited them to come and see. I gave toward the mission. I did all that I could with, with the resources I had, with, with the gifts that you gave me, with the passions you put on my heart, with the time that you allocated to me. With all of that, I worked to build up the church so that it could accomplish its mission in the world, both locally and globally. I lived a righteous life as best I was able. And with the Spirit's help, I lived righteously so that even if they didn't believe, they at the very least would see Jesus in me. I glorified you on earth. Could you pray that prayer? Based on the trajectory of your life right now, could you pray that prayer 12 hours before you die? And if not, and you're a professing Christian, you need to make changes. You need to look at what's going on in your life and your priorities and where you're putting your time and your money and your energy and your gifts. And you need to make the change so you can pray that prayer 12 hours before you die. Repent of whatever you currently have wrong and set yourself up to pray that just as Jesus did. And finally this, to pray as Jesus prays, uh, prayed means that I should also pray keeping the big picture in mind prayers. Keep the big picture in mind. Now this just comes back to what we saw earlier and very quickly it makes sense that Christ-centered prayers, it makes sense that Christ-centered prayers are going to be mission-oriented prayers that it's going to get us engaged in the world, that we're going to know that there's a purpose for everything that's happening in our lives and that we can actually endure through all of those trials. Jesus 
finishes up this section and says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, that's big picture. Because Jesus is thinking not only of where he is right now, not only where he's going to end up in glorifying the Father, but where he started. Pre pre-crucifixion, pre-incarnation glory of Christ and post-crucifixion, post-resurrection glory of Christ. Can I get to the place where I will see everything in my life, good and bad, as an opportunity for the gospel that I'll see the big picture that God's mission in the world will become my priority and will I pray for that? Always keeping eternity in view always keeping eternity in view and not the immediate circumstances. It's so tempting to keep our focus and attention on these things, but getting eternity in view instead. And again, nothing, nothing of this is easy. But there's no telling the amazing things that we will see and we will experience in our lives if we pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. Amen? Let's pray together right now. Father, I would pray first of all for those who have listened in on this message and are not believers, whether here in the room, Father, or watching online, and I I pray, God, that they would be drawn by Your Spirit to this life-giving gospel and, and, and to live a life that's just so meaningful because it's centered on You. And God, I would pray for every believer in the room, Father, every single one of us can hear from the Holy Spirit in this moment. Not one of us who, who doesn't have some change that might have to happen in our lives. So God, I pray that you would bring about great conviction. Holy Spirit, move to convince us of these truths and convict us of our own sin so that we might pray more like our Savior prayed. Thank you for being a Father who gathers us in, a a Father who invites us to speak to Him, a Father who is near and who understands us. Father, help us to, to revel in that to thank you for it and to take advantage of it. And I pray this in the name of the Savior.